Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Welcome to episode 112 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Jonah Matranga on the podcast. You may know him from bands like Far, New End Original, Gratitude, or Solo under his own name, and One Line Drawn. Jonah recently released a book entitled Alone Rewinding, 23 Years of Fatherhood in Music. We talk extensively about the book, his musical life, and what is next. I'd like to take a moment to mention my book, Anthology of Emo, Volume 1. It is available now to pre-order at anthologyofemo.com. Ten interviews called from 100-plus episodes of the last six years and includes a foreword by Andrew Satcher from Brooklyn Vegan. I spent the last two years working on this, so I hope you enjoy anthologyofemo.com. Look out for some events in major cities next year. This is episode 112 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jonah Matranga. Like Elvis, like everyone, we all die, we all live on photos in paperbacks, lucky we're coming back. That's washed up emo. I love it. This, this, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I imagined. I'm amazed that it's actually been that long. That's so. Just kind of congratulations. Um, I I love when people stick with things. The one of my favorite, not a particularly nice review towards me, but one of my favorite things that anyone ever said is essentially, I don't really like this guy, but he just keeps trying. Yeah, and I really, I just really enjoyed that and it, and it actually felt sincere it didn't feel like a backhanded compliment it felt like the guy was like you know it's not my thing but respect yeah and so to me for anyone that that keeps it together and keeps it going um yeah it's just it's just cool and yeah i mean it's cool to hear you talk about emo in that context because i yeah i just always thought it was i mean for me it was such a natural fit so i don't know if you know this but I think it was Kerrang. It was either Kerrang or Rock Sound somewhere back in the day. We're talking 96. First time Far was not even, we weren't even over to England yet, but they were starting to write about the, the United States scene. And there's a little picture of me saying, uh, Emo King. Wow. And 
and all my friends were laughing because no one knew what emo was. Um, and so for me, it was always just, it was always just people that came from punk or kind of grew up in, in different ways or really loved the energy of it. And for whatever reason, just didn't have that kind of macho, angry thing. And it was a little bit more angsty and sensitive and whatever else. And um, so that for me is, is kind of when it really started is when it was when it's to me, it's, a, it's sort of a post-punk genre. Um, it's people who maybe still like kind of some of the sentiment of, of unpunk music but really wanted to be stripped down, really didn't want any, have any rock star mm-hmm. put ons um, and just kind of do it. So I love that you've been, I love that you're preserving it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope, uh, yeah, I hope that the, over time, it, you know, the, especially the book or those things, there's a, there's a seriousness to it versus uh, a, a snide comment or a joke. Yeah, I do. I honestly, I hope sort of once it goes by, because that's, I mean, it's sort of the, it's funny that, the grunge thing happened with it and it happened it's almost like by the time anyone even figured out like grunge was really popular before it became a joke Mm -hmm. whereas emo it was only by the time it was sort of popular that it became a joke to a lot of people and became a caricature of itself so it really never even had a time in the sun Um, it's sort of it's always I think most people that know the term in sort of the mainstream kind of ridicule it i mean um, i feel like it's 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 like comedy with the oscars you're not going to win an oscar with comedy you're not well going to you're not going to win anything any anything. awards by saying i mean it's it's funny there's bands that i'd promote and support and then they'd quickly on their next album or record they would say like we're an indie rock band totally like they want Absolutely. nothing to yeah. do with the word yeah <laughs> and that was a good thing for me is i had nothing to lose so when I mean, I, I, I have and will continue to distance myself from things that are sort of more popular iterations of what people understand emo to be, because I don't really think that's what I ever did. And, and that's fine. Like you say, you know, good on everyone who was ever called anything, because who really cares? And yeah, I never really shied away from the word, um, because for me, there always, there was a, it was a neat community, um, and because that, that, I mean, that, that's yeah. what it was. Absolutely, it was. It was. It was and, the only place we fit, really. Honestly. And those the genres. I mean, it wasn't like you were a hardcore band, but you had a punk band on the bill. You had a kid with a guitar. Like it wasn't. It wasn't all like new metal bands five in a row. It was different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was. It was. Yeah, when it can be promise ring and far, that's a strange genre. And the kids were. I mean. I think fans still today, that's why they want that. It's always been Someone my favorite Someone going to a show, show being like, I want to hear different stuff all day. Yeah. It's always been my favorite thing is bills that are, are really actually different people doing different things and not sort of like five variations on a theme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Brookline, Massachusetts, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're going back. We're going back. All this right. Washed up. Let's Come on, it. we're older. <laughs> Can you remember it all? Uh, uh, early. Was there was the Brookline get, going to shows? Like, do you remember all that stuff, or was it music kind of came a little later? Well, so I mean, Boston. I mean, at the time I was growing up, I mean, there was the band Boston, 
So there was a band named after the city I was growing up in, who was the biggest thing in the world, and had these you know larger than life anthems. There's Aerosmith, you know, the sort of Boston yeah. sort of boys like Gone Good kind of thing. And for anyone listening, like Aerosmith at one point was an interesting and relevant and badass hard rock band. I swear <laughs> to you, just go back a ways before the elevator. Some. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just to be clear, uh, the Cars were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some massive, massive bands that were in our city. So as a little kid learning to play music, it was a little strange having superheroes kind of in our backyard. And on the sort of smaller end, uh, you know, Mission of Burma, you know, was doing their thing mm-hmm. and gangrene. And I was introduced to punk rock through a comp called This Is Boston, Not L.A. Um, Who put that out? Uh, was that Tang? Uh, it might have. I think it was... Um, Throbbing Lobster? Oh, wow. I think. I, but it's funny. I, it's going back. I, I have the, the vinyl, so I'll, I'll check. Um, so, yeah. So, it was... I mean, I was so young and so green. So, my friend Josh was... He played drums in the first iteration of the Bostones. And so, he was... He's the guy who introduced me to Fishbone. And he was sort of... He was doing more stuff. He was kind of going out. I was... It's ironic. I was in a band... In, you know, in a high school band, kind of an even sixth grade band. And I was really interested in that. And I would go see shows. Well, I guess part of it is that I was, you know, 14. Yeah. So I wasn't going out to clubs. Yeah, um, you're not so going I didn't to Paradise get to Rock experience Club. that. I would go. I remember uh, there was a band called O Positive that was one of the most influential bands to me. Um, I saw them doing AIDS Benefit Longwood Auditorium. Me and my friend Josh went and. And that was a really big deal for me because they were a band that was, you know, this was just a small place, basically. And they were a band that I could sort of imagine getting to. They were sort of scaled down. Mm -hmm. Because we'd be going to the Centrum and, you know, these massive places in the garden, of course, the garden. Um, My first big rock show was, you know, the police on the Synchronicity Tour, you know. At the Boston Garden? No, at the the, um, the, Foxborough uh, Stadium. Oh, the Foxborough, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In the massive outdoor thing. It was on my birthday and whatever it was. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, so I was, and also that's the thing is, I would listen to This is Boston in LA, and then I would listen to... COZ and BCN and FNX and I was a radio kid as much as I was anything else because um, you didn't know I mean well I just I just knew tunes so whether it was again whether it was gangrene like ripping through I didn't really know what punk rock was and what rock was and what, I just knew a song when I liked it and so there was my tastes were so all over the place and I was just kind of always looking for that thing that yeah, that let me kind of figure out whatever I was feeling at the time. So, yeah, I wasn't really, I wasn't super cool or anything, and not a lot of us were. Um, Josh, I remember just being kind of cooler than everyone else, and he somehow <laughs> had a line in on what was going on. But me and all my buddies, we were just, uh, we were just kind of in love with music, and there was just a huge, huge amount of music happening in Boston at that time. What years was that again? So, I mean... When- you know, so I'm born in 69. Uh, I was in Mission Hill in Cambridge in my early, early years. Came to Brookline in third grade. So whatever that is, it's, you know, sort of mid-70s. Um, so I was in Brookline from the mid-70s essentially until, uh, whatever, 87 is when I left for school and went to the West Coast. So up until I was 17, 
you know, I was East Coast kid. Um, and I feel, still feel like I'm an East Coast kid at heart. But that's where I learned everything. I mean, it's... Um, I get to plug my book, too. Um, yes, you do. I just wrote a book about all of this stuff. And mostly it's about being a dad and making music for a living. And there's quite a bit that I found was important about setting it up and a lot of that's Boston stuff. And I still remember seeing you two at the Centrum and meeting them and how cool they were and how much that affected me to see this massive rock band be really nice to a teenager. And it really it kind of turned me into who I am as a performer. And what I mean by that is someone who really gives a shit about anyone that gives a shit, you know, it was just, it was just psyched and never takes one mm-hmm. person for granted. And the fact that you two could do that on such a massive scale at that time really, really affected me. And yeah. So then going to school, was it, were you going, were you doing bands then or yeah. where did you go again? I forgot. I went to the Claremont colleges out West, um, these tiny little liberal, li- I mean, Pitzer in particular was mine. It was a little hippie school, but it's a five college consortium that is, I think the total of all five schools is 5,000 kids. Wow. So Pitzer was like 700 kids. And that was definitely the environment that worked well for freaky little me. And yeah, I mean, I was in bands and in, in college and they were terrible and um i think i actually i think i like the music in a lot of ways that i made in high school better because in college is when i started thinking i was cool and like and that i had my shit together or something and i made some music that just really to me sounds like someone who thinks he's pretty cool (laughs) whereas in high school i was much more unsure and i really enjoy the way i sounded back then actually more i mean not sounded i mean my voice had hardly you know broken yet i was sort of meandering my way through puberty but it was a sweet time and so college was yeah it was a it was fine but i don't of all of the times in my life that's the one where they're the least they're the fewest songs that i remember Mm -hmm. or think are particularly interesting um i was kind of kind of finding my way between adolescence and adulthood then so then when did uh were, were you finding about punk rock stuff then were you finding about the hardcore no, so, bands or I was mean, it still no i would say that's the most one i was into very like college rock when i was in college um so yeah no when i was young it was all over the place um at college i mean my tastes were still super broad and strange so i was listening to a lot of strange ambient music uh you know fripp Eno kind of stuff and um and still all over the map, but definitely into, I don't know, Jane's Addiction and yeah. um, sort of bands that were big in that. I mean, there was a thing called College Radio then, and there was a real culture around that. Mm-hmm. Um, R.E.M. and, you know, and, and who I'd loved in high school as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny because college was sort of a, it was all like, I liked the Grateful Dead in college. And, and I would have hated you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I hated me too. <laughs> I know, but that's, no, but I'm I was kidding. the, no, I mean, but I was the kid who was at the Grateful Dead show and then at the Jane show and then doing my acoustic thing and then like in a weird funk rock band and then in this other band, this kind of like classic rock band. And I was, again, I was just all about writing songs and figuring out how to make music and figuring out what music was and really open to, yeah, whatever it was that kind of that got to me and kind of cracked me open. Um, so it was a lot of stuff, but college was, yeah, college was a mess. College was a mess. And then I, I think I kind of started finding my way when I got out of college and, and met up with the far guys. Um, and we were a total mess too in the beginning. Um, and 
and maybe the whole way through, but it turned into, I think, kind of an asset for us that uh, that ended up in this kind of misfit misfit land that we're talking about. So even when you were when when Far started, and you can maybe talk about that, but was it was every was other folks in the bands mentioning things you'd never heard before, or Absolutely. even the sound no, Sean, itself? So yeah. So to bring it back to hardcore, I would say one of the many things that Sean really gave me uh, guitars for Far um, is he was i mean his first band was on victory and he was really into that world and he was friends with kevin seconds who was living in sacramento at the time who i got to know just as the awesome person that he is and then it sort of started to dawn on me as i because i was an east coast hardcore kid and i'd heard of seven seconds but i'd really never listened to them same thing with me i'd have heard but never listened right and (laughs) and so far yeah and so i uh that was a big introduction to me is Sean playing me victory bands um, and getting into seven seconds through knowing Kevin. But by the time I had met him, he was doing stuff not at all. Like even with that, seven seconds already done soul force and new wind and all this kind of, again, very sort of poppier college Rocky stuff. But then I went back and heard the crew and, you know, and sort of like heard that kind of source material and similarly with i went backwards to minor threat i heard fugazi first uh and just instantly in love with waiting room and then went back and sort of so but yeah sean loved bad brains but even then again it's so interesting when i say all this out loud the first record I got into a bad room was like Quickness or something like that. And so they were sort of a little more funky and, you know, sort of like this sort of like funk metal kind of yeah. thing almost. And, and I really love that record. But when I went back to Eye Against Eye and yeah, yeah. Um, so you sort of got exposed late, but then did the homework. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it was, it, I think it, my friends were all, cooler than me and they were all better at their instruments than me and all i did my whole growing up was sit in my room with my four track and learn about writing songs and so i think in that way i was drawn to stuff that was more songwriterly and um and i didn't want to be someone i wasn't and so what what was interesting to me was stuff I could make alone in my room, which ended up being kind of softer Suzanne Vega-y kind of <laughs> like sweet stuff. Um, and I had to, it's, it's strange. I mean, I think I had so much anger in me that I couldn't even, I couldn't even touch it. And so it was only when I, when I grew up and I could kind of go back and, um, and get into sort of heavier, more abrasive musics. And it was also music that, yeah, I didn't really, it's not that I didn't understand it. It's that it ju- I just felt like it was made by people that were tougher than me and I didn't want to pose. Well, that was the part of hardcore that I never liked Yeah, where I go to a show, you stick your arm out to not get hit. Yeah. I mean, I loved strife or I love those bands, but yeah. I like something about it. And then when I heard post hardcore, right. And I was like, okay, yeah. Everyone's more nodding their head. Yes, there's still the some violence, but it it wasn't the same, and it, it seemed more emotive to me. Yeah. When I first heard if it was quicksand or fireside or like all these yeah. sort of like Absolutely. I was like, oh, okay, this is where I want to go. Yeah. Was when far was I felt was in that same boat. I remember Sean playing me the first quicksand seven inch, and 
that was we were just starting to kind of figure out who we were. So yeah, so I was bringing this kind of like, you know, I loved Prince and Ricky Lee Jones and Pearl Jam and this kind of disparate stuff, but all of it was basically uh, more romantic and kind of bigger. Sean was into sort of tougher stuff, Bad Brains and Victory stuff. Um, Chris was 15. He was just sort of, he was up for whatever. Yeah, up for whatever. Um, uh, and Malcolm, our first bassist, was sort of like a, he was older than me or maybe around the same age as me, but he was more sort of like prog rocky kind of thing. And um, so we were just a total, just a total hodgepodge. And did you know the term then? Emo? Like post-hardcore. Oh, post-hardcore, yes. I mean, but I was learning post-hardcore really as it was starting to be a thing. Um, and, yeah, that very first Quicksand 7-inch was the kind of the way Walter was singing over those riffs. It definitely... It's what we were already stumbling onto, and it was really great to hear someone doing it in a more fully formed way um and it wasn't i don't think we sound much like quicksand at all and i just think they were i think one they were one of the first bands to really kind of put it together and really something could effectively be called post-hardcore i mean they came from hardcore and it was but it was a bit slowed down it was a bit more singy it was a bit you know yeah um was that a big influence on tin cans the first record i mean again not not what was not overtly um it's funny i mean it sounds strange to say but our influences were well okay so i mean i can go sort of track by track i mean what i've wanted to say is just kind of a strange mess i suppose there's some quick sense swing to that love american style is just a just a furious blast or whatever in the aisle yelling is that's more Fugazi than anything else to me. Like the riff, mm-hmm. I'm definitely trying to be Guy in that song. Um, <laughs> and, and there's one shout after a breakdown that's, yeah, like definite lift. Um, and, uh, and then, but then there's, you know, there's songs like Girl, and I don't even know where to put that. I mean, that was just this strange, soft little tune and an odd meter. I would say probably PJ Harvey is the biggest influence of that song because I was really in love with dry mm-hmm. and in love with the way she played with, with stuff and androgyny. And I was really interested in that. Um, boring life. Is it, I would say this, the songs I was making on my own were just an extension of the songs I'd always been making, but run through the filter of this rock band. So it made for a real strange mix. Sean was writing definitely more like riffy influenced by that scene stuff. But then I was singing essentially like a woman, you know, over that mm-hmm. music. Um, so what I, I wrote, Girl and Boring Life and Joining the Circus and Sorrow's End, I think we wrote together. So those tunes, it's not that I'm like above influences. I just, I was such a strange mess of influence. And I was running my ideas through these other people. And I didn't even know what that meant until that band. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of those first few things that happened with Far that you felt that had some life? Because you know when you have the first band, yeah, you know, yeah, those yeah, first yeah, tours, yeah, you know, the first yeah. record, you're like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were huge in Sacramento right off the bat. Because Chris really? was in high school. Oh, yeah. we were, Everyone hated us because we... 
I essentially showed up and we started playing shows and we were, you know, I mean, massive for that yeah. world. Um, the Cattle Club and, and yeah, and literally though, it was because Chris was in high school and all his friends would come out to the shows and that kind of bloomed. And we were all right and we kind of had our shit together and stuff, but we were, yeah, I mean, our first demo and, and listening game were just kind of a mess. Then Malcolm left the band and we all kind of looked at each other and we said, like, do we want to continue to be local heroes or do we want to try and kind of get out there? And as we did that, I think we started to find ourselves so quick. This EP we made um, is definitely, uh, that's where we started finding ourselves. I think where we really found ourselves is the cassette um, that just we just call the Moon Man cassette because John's buddy Steve did a drawing, some weird line drawing of a Moon Man kind of guy. And, it was just, and uh, just quickly for the listeners, cassettes are these plastic yeah, things. Yeah, you put yeah, them yeah, into exactly. tape decks. People have them at Urban Outfitters now. Okay, continue. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> they, yeah. Well, I do you. that when people explain what magazines are. I explain what magazines are too. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Anger. Yeah, he doesn't like cassettes. <laughs> um, so, but that cassette for me was where we yeah where we kind of figured it out and that was the first version of in the aisle and boring life i think it took called man of the year and i forget what the fourth song was um but yeah that's when i think we started being a band that tape and that was the precursor to tin cans um and and tin cans was okay to me i think it's got its moments um, some people love it and I'm happy they do, but we were incredibly self-conscious still and we were on a major and that was at a time when being on a major was being on a major. And so there was still some identity crisis going on. And, um, so it was kind of a, a mess. I think water and solutions is, is really, I think we finally figured out how to be a band right before we broke up. Honestly, how long was it? I, I, I yeah. forget because I don't know. Yeah. Uh, how long from the record release? When did it? When did it come out? And then how long from that point? I feel like I saw that tour before. Water and Solutions was released in April of 98. And we broke up in November of 98. Did you do a tour? Yeah, we, we, we toured. Did you do it? Pretty def- much. We were on tour. Pretty much from the time. So Seven Seconds took us out on our first national tour. Oh, wow. That was around the time Quick was out. So that would have been 94, 95. We got signed to Immortal around then. We toured a bunch leading up to Tin Cans. That's when we were like we played with Strife a ton. We played with Snapcase a lot. A lot of those hardcore bands really they were the first bands that I really felt a kinship with. Sensefield was a huge deal because they were they were the most like us to me. We were heavier than yeah, them. Yeah, I agree. But they were the the closest analog to us to where they didn't really fit on the hardcore shows but we were on the hardcore shows and um, you can't not love john oh, so. well i mean and john was yeah i mean me and john were fast friends and so close and um in every way i mean just really yeah we i loved just hanging out with them forever i loved playing with them i loved their music and that's the thing is that i loved strife and snapcase as people and I respected their music a lot but again it was never music that I was going to make it just it wasn't it was much tougher than me it was much it was much more yeah just I don't know and Sensefield was 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 my kind of thing um so you went out on tour with them so yeah we played with them a ton we just kind of found our fellow misfits and did our thing (laughs) so anyway that's all to say we were on tour a ton through that time 
Sony tried to put us, you know, we went out when we got on Sony, we went out with God Lives Underwater. We went out with, we almost went out with Prong, but they broke up before we think we went with Sepultura. We were, we played essentially Sepultura's last shows. So um, great. They were just putting us on there with everyone. And of course, in Immortal, Corn was blowing up, Incubus was blowing up. So they would try to put us with them. But again, we just weren't that. We, we, Why? Um, not you, but saying, like, was it the fan reaction? Was it the... Yeah, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. I think, uh, I think if, I, if we had played the exact same music and my presentation had been a little bit more kind of tough and cool and who's got the herb and kind of that kind of thing, <laughs> um, I think we could have fit in a lot better. Um, and Sean always, I think, hated me for that because we'd be on these like big rock shows and playing these these really heavy songs. And then in between, I'd be essentially just like I am now, just like, "Hey, what's up, guys?" And it just that wasn't a Instead thing. Of like, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I would kind of joke about that even. And and you know, we grew up with Deftones. Who were also kind of a sweet misfit band, and they, but they just fit into that world so much better. They were just much sort of like cooler, and that was them. Um, and you know, because none of us, Johnny drank a little bit, but me and Sean and Chris, none of us did any drugs at all, and we weren't like straight edge. But that's the thing, we weren't even that. But we also weren't smoking weed and hanging out and drinking forties and doing that whole thing that was yeah. a part of that kind of alt rock, active rock culture. Um, but anyway, I really loved Deftones and I was very protective of them. And so I was pretty much sort of making fun of Corn and bands like that because I just thought they were ripping off Deftones and taking away anything that was interesting because what I loved about Deftones was their sort of, their more sensitive stuff and the way Chino would kind of croon. And yeah, um, that's always what I loved. So anyway, is all wrapping around to say that we toured pretty nonstop for. Yeah, I would say for four or five years. And then by the time we'd really made this record that I really thought was was us. And that was, was interesting. It. Yeah, we were so burnt. And we still, I mean, Water and Solutions, I still think, hasn't cracked 50,000 copies. I mean... Really? Oh, yeah. By the time we broke up, it was at 25. I'll look tomorrow. Yeah, look. look yeah, yeah, check the numbers. Yeah, you're, you're going to know better than anyone. Uh, see what you can do about that catalog. Uh, but, I mean, and even at the time, our our little fan base was so devoted that it seemed like we were bigger than we were in a way. Like, there were still fan websites back then. Oh, yeah. And we had a ton of fan-built websites relative to how tiny we were in record sales. So we never sold a lot of records. We never fit in anywhere. On the Water and Solutions stuff, I mean, they'd still try and... I mean, the reason FAR basically broke up is because we got offered... And this is after touring with Monster Magnet and everything else they tried to put us out there with. And I wanted to be out with, with Radiohead and with, with sort of bands that were where we'd be the heavier band on the bill, not the sort of this band struggling to be heavy mm-hmm. enough. Um but the, yeah, the tour I turned down that essentially led to the dissolution of the band was uh, it was Incubus and System of a Down, and System wasn't big yet at all, so it was it wasn't we weren't even sure whether it was going to be us in the middle or System in the middle and who would be opening. But um, yeah, I, I turned it down because I was just tired. I didn't think we fit in that world. I was tired of trying to fit into that world. I was really proud of our record. We were already fighting and stuff, but I, I just I just was. 
I wanted to go out and play to the people who gave a shit about us and the people who I just sort of wanted to hang out with after the show. And even if it was smaller shows, I wanted to build our little world. And the, the thinking was, no, 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 get in front of as many heads as possible. Just doesn't matter. Just go out and do that. And as far as I was concerned, it wasn't working, but more than that, I was tired and I was a father and, uh, you know, and I was getting divorced. I mean, it's just, there was a lot, there's a lot going on. And so that was it. That was sort of when I was so the, only like five or six months on that record. Yeah. But I feel like it had a life after it. It had a much bigger life after it. Oh, yes, it was. I remember seeing uh, Spen Chevelle, um, who was who was super far influenced. I remember it was maybe a year after we broke up, maybe a couple, but they were on tour, I believe, with Filter, and they were doing. Not that they were copying us or anything, but they were doing a very similar thing. This heavy thing, but in a sort of normal way. None of them were super macho. And odd meter, like all the things we were doing. And people were loving it. I went to see them opening for Filter at the Warfield in San Francisco. And I was just looking around, like, what happened now? People are understanding this music. And so I think I think we probably jumped a little bit early. Um but yeah, the record has had a beautiful. Still does. Yeah, it's. A, it's, it's. I'm really proud of it. It's I'm really sure you held have up. Men- I'm sure people still mention it. Or- oh, all the time. That's. I mean, it's. And I don't shy away from it whatsoever. It's not. I've obviously done a million things since that are n- nothing like that record. And it's a little bit like I was as a kid. I, I just. I still love super heavy stuff and super soft stuff and super happy stuff and super sad stuff and <laughs> and that to me was always the special thing about emo is that it didn't as long as you were meaning it it didn't really matter if you were freaking out and pissed or if you're being only kind of lonely and sad or if you're being you know really promise ringy and like sweet and poppy it was was earnest yeah it was earnest that it's to me emo is an earnest genre for better for worse people who like earnest things i think like a lot of those bands and people who like more ironic kind of cool things don't really like it. Don't really like any of the bands. It's for me. It, it's too real. Yeah. For some people. Yes. Yes. Like, no, I really mean this. Right. Yeah. This isn't. I'm not putting on a show no. and then I'm going to come off and say something else. Like yep. I'm saying exactly what I mean. Yep. When I'm there. Yep. Which I think some people don't understand or have a hard time. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, whether it's in in social situations or especially at a, at a rock show, people don't really <laughs> like hearing that stuff. People would yeah. rather have small talk. Emo is not small talk. <laughs> It just it's a long not. conversation. Yep. For better or for worse, it's two in the morning, pouring your heart out, doing your thing, making the mixtape. And that's always the kid I was. Um, and, and really, it's still, for better or worse, the, the human that I still am. I would just much rather hang out in a small group of people or a small show um, and, yeah, kind of pour hearts out to each other. It's, I'm into it. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think for one line drawing. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll edit it out so I sound smarter. Sure. Smarter was one of the first shows you did at like a CMJ or in New York because I feel like you had RTD or R2D2 with you, yep. and it was like I think you weren't even on the bill. I think it was like an unannounced. I'm was thinking the, that might have been the West Beth Theater with Hot Water Music and Air Type. Was that does that sound familiar to yes. you? Yes, because that I believe. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So right. Uh, um, so. When Far broke up, and then within a year, I was running around doing online drawing, um, and that that really came about because this the small crew of people that 
had really enjoyed far I just kept in touch with them. We had, you know, an email list and we're very fastidious and yeah. write back at everyone. And so I just kept talking to them and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And it, as it turns out, it was nothing like far. Um, and it was still emo. And that's sort of that I, I think speaks in some ways to how expansive the genre really is, because a lot of these people that met us through this, you know, it's kind of heavy music and with other heavy bands, all of a sudden it's like me and a guitar sing song pop tunes with a robot and people stuck around and so yeah that west best show i remember it very clearly because i felt real nervous um i hadn't played a lot of shows and i was on so that was definitely an early show oh that was one of the first i mean i think i was probably playing west coast some before then but it got going real fast but i remember Um, it being okay this is Jonah. He's going to yep. play this show. He's got this song. There was this anticipation for it. Um, I remember from that show. I can't remember if you were listed or not. Or it might have been. I don't think I was. I don't. I mean, because I'm just kind of the reason I think that. Unless it was like a was it like a crank showcase or something? Or it might have been. Maybe it was that because I put out sketchy EP number one on my own, and then crank reissued it essentially like did a pressing of it so maybe i kind of snuck in on that train or something but yes that was super super early and that was really the first time i remember i mean i i talk about that in the book i talk about this moment of singing crush on everyone at west beth and it was kind of quiet in a good way and i couldn't believe that everyone had kind of like sort of shut up and was listening to this strange thing and i finished that tune and someone just sort of let out this really triumphant like holler and i thought huh like i think i'm gonna be able to to keep doing this because i really didn't know i didn't have any idea what i was doing after far i mean i was just kind of hustling to make money and still do what i loved and raise my kid and Mm -hmm. um i had no idea how it was gonna go and everything was moving way too fast to think about it so that west beth show was was a was a really big deal for me that was when i was starting to kind of have some confidence in it um and what it's kind of what let one line drawing be be a thing i think if that if those early days had kind of flopped i'm not sure what it would have done but i mean it kind of just set it off on a course it did it absolutely did and i mean i put out a couple things on my own and then i owe norman uh then arenas now brandon um a huge debt because he a was always real sweet and I, i i ran into him walking out of what turned out to be the last far show in chicago and he right from then we we talked i sent him songs he liked them uh we talked about stuff that turned into new end original um which of course an anagram for one line drawing and so but that led me to jade tree i didn't know the jade tree guys norman was completely my oh rad my sort of chaperone into that world that's why they put out visitor i i was even paranoid about them doing a record because i I, and I said to them, you don't have to put up my stuff. Like, I know you like New End and you like Norman and Scott and Charlie, but I'm like, no, we actually like what you're doing too. And um, so, yeah, that led to that. And it was just sort of a lot of real, some real nice people and some real good serendipity. Yeah. No, I think the New End stuff, talk about that a little more because I think a lot of people have some affinity to that. And yeah. it gets requested at our DJ night a lot. Yeah. Um, what are some of the times from that that was that on 
not was that wasn't Grape OS. That was that was did some do it? No. Who did the, I, who did the new end original? J Tree. Oh yeah, J Tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, For some reason, I thought there was something I did a record, before. I did. Well, I did Rival Schools United by One Line Drawing, which came out on some. That's I believe. What, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and I still have Walter's answering machine message saying he likes sketchy one and stuff. That's rad. And, yeah, I was so. That was when I was sort of finding my way into the world and. Walter being sweet about that, he was another real early angel for me because getting to do that record with them is when I kind of looked around and thought, oh, so I'm I'm part of this community, and I'm a real loner. So it was nice to to feel like I was part of a community. And then one of the early one line drawing tours overseas was I went out with Sergio from Quicksand, and he was doing a kind of a soloy thing, and so I kind of the kind of the New York post hardcore scene really I kind of found my little world in that. And then, um, yeah, so Jade Tree did New End, and um, that was, uh, yeah, I mean, that record, that's really the only record I've ever made where even in that, in that small scale, people were excited about it. There was a there was a buzz definitely. about it, and I mean it was definitely an ex membersy thing. It was you know far in Texas and that kind of and that was when that was sort of a thing, and. Um, yeah, it was really fun making that record, and it was really fun playing with those guys. And once again, we were broken up, you know, before the record was anywhere. <laughs> what happened? I mean, <laughs> same I mean, thing? The I, same usual shit? Well, so different, though, because Far had been together forever. We kind of grew up together, and uh, I think by the time we were getting our shit together musically, we were just we were just tired. Whereas New End... Honestly, to this day, and I, I really just try not to speak on things I don't, uh, you know, in the book, in person, whatever, I don't try and invent what other people were thinking. All I know is that we were on tour in Europe. It felt a little bit tense, but I didn't quite know why. Um, I didn't quite get it, but I grew up around a lot of trauma, and so for me, when when there's things happening around me, but I I don't know what's happening, it's very... It's very jittery for me. I really want to figure it out and try and fix it. And um, I'm a really sensitive creature that way. So I was feeling something. Didn't quite know what it was. There was a thing where I think someone did a stage dive or something. And Scott got really pissed and essentially walked off stage. Um, and because he was just not into something about that. I wanted to go back out and sing more. He didn't. Um, and there was this big kind of blow up. It's the only time I've ever heard Norman yell. We kind of like shouted at each other. And um, I literally forget if anyone, if I went out, if anyone went out, if anything happened. But that Scott and Charlie just said, we don't want to be in a band. And they went, I think we finished the tour. But, but yeah, they just kind of went home. I was really sad and kind of angry because there were all these songs I had written that were going to be a one-line drawing record before we kind of renamed mm-hmm. it. And so I was really mad that I had kind of like let them in and we had made this thing together that we really loved and they were just bailing. So that was, for me, very different than Far. Far was, we were tired. Um, I didn't want to break up that band either. I didn't, um, that was basically precipitated by me turning down that tour and me saying that I wanted to try writing and playing some stuff that Far didn't like, some mm-hmm. 14 to 41 and better than this and kind of some early one-line drawing stuff. I tried to have Far play that. And they just didn't, they weren't really into it. So I, 
I said, I'm kind of tired. So after we finished the water and solution cycle, I think I wanted to go and do this for a minute. And it, I think it just freaked everyone out. But so that was, that was different. That was a long running thing. New one was a strange little kind of Zenith thing. I mean, I, we, I don't know how many shows we played, but it wasn't very many. <laughs> um, we toured a bunch coming up to the record and then a couple more tours after that and it was over. And then me and Norman tried to play some more shows, but it didn't, it didn't feel the same. Um, I'm kind of a guy who like the band's the band and replacing people replacing yeah. people is strange. So then what happened after that? Did you go back home and sort of reset again? What was the There was no time to reset. I was just going. Um one line drawing actually was was as big as it ever would be in in the wake of New End. Um I did visitor, I did the volunteers on Jade Tree and then then a strange thing started happening where bands that had been influenced by far were getting huge Thursday, Coheed, um, and they would take me out as a little solo artist. And so I would literally just get a bunk on the bus and go and play, <laughs> open up for them at these thousand seat things because post hardcore Nemo was getting bigger then. Um, it's sort of it's this pattern of like I'm a little sort of late, or maybe I'm early to the party and then I go home and the party gets great. Um, so that was take a happening. hint Jonah no, yeah, I'm just tell me about it I do not learn well at all I'm a very slow learner when it comes to that or I'm just really I just kind of do what I do and fuck it I think that's more of the thing um, but I remember yeah so I, so no one line drawing I mean that was the most yeah that was the most popular I ever was was in in that sort of 2002 to 2005 kind of zone um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's just when the scene was really, it was just really good. It was really big, but not, it hadn't been sort of sucked up into the mothership yet. No, that was four, yeah. four or five. It was right before yeah. things started getting live stupid. Nation. Yeah. 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 Um, that's the verb I like to use. Um, yeah. So that was, that was that. And, and then of course, but right when that was happening, I, I kind of blew all that up and started gratitude. Um, and went back into this sort of like the most rocking thing I'd done, but still kind of like poppy and big um, and on a major label again. So I've just sort of hopped all over the place and kind of followed. Talk about the gratitude yeah. stuff for a little bit, because I think a lot of people might not know about it yeah. or then the, I mean, again, back in the major label world, they've got different questions than yeah. in indie. Yeah. <laughs> they have yeah. different goals. And <laughs> we were, I mean, we were, we were one of the last big signings on Atlantic, like of of that sort of of like a, a starting out rock band. Yeah, yeah. And so I met. Well, I had known Mark from Gratitude. He actually went to Pitzer as well, but he was a few years younger than me, so we didn't really know each other there. But he was in a band called The Collision, and they actually went out with New End. New End did, I think, a tour where we tried to have a different basis and drummer and they were on that. And so I met Mark sort of more, uh, substantially then. And we just kept in touch. Um, so that would have been 2000, yeah, one or something like that, that I met her, maybe, maybe two. And then we kept in touch. And then a few years later, he was, uh, he was in a band called crumb and their singer, uh, Robbie was going to go do his own thing and Mark wanted to start something else up. 
Um, so, yeah, we just started writing songs, and Mark was, he knew all these people. He knew people at management, and he knew people at Atlantic, and so he he's pretty much responsible for that. And we wrote these songs that I just really adored, um, just really very earnest, very just big, earnest pop rock songs. Um, had so much fun writing them. And we called the band Gratitude. You know, it was really about the sort of this uplift and like really kind of going for that. And, um, and it was, si- we were signed in such a sweet, organic way. I mean, it was literally like us and two guitars up in the president's office in Atlantic. Um, it was Ron, I think is the guy we played for. Uh, and, uh, I forget his last name even, but Craig was still one of the presidents, but I don't think we played for Craig. I think we played with the other guy. Um, but yeah, we got signed off that. It was just, you know, like a really big record deal. And they, um, you know, played for all these different producers. And I'm not sure what anyone thought it was going to be, but everyone was really excited about it. And that was the only time I've ever been a, like that band on a label. We went and they flew us to Hawaii to play with you know, with Jason Mraz and kind of play for all these people. And we played all the showcases. And um, and once again, uh, by the time the record was out, it was the band was ready. Really? It was imploding, yeah. I mean, really, they spent a bunch of money on us. The money ran out. Uh, and Mark left. And I think he thought when he left, the band would break up. But the rest of us wanted to keep going and do it on a more small-scale level. And that's when the band was actually more fun. Um, It's not Mark's fault or whatever. No ill will. And um, I love all the songs we wrote together. But we started being a band in a way that I understand how to be a band. We were sort of back in the van, gutting it out, making a little EP on our own, making our merch, kind of just hustling. And that's kind of, that's what I know. I'm not really good at the other stuff, apparently. But that stuff I really love. So, but then he... uh, yeah, I mean, he, he he wanted all this money for us to keep using the band name. We didn't have that much money. He, you know, was going to sue me. I was scared. I didn't know anything about law. I didn't have any money. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was the end of that. Um, uh, but it's a good record. It's a cool record. I don't think it, I don't think it came out as good as it could have, but I think the tunes are really good. Um, and there's one version of Feel All Right that we did right before we broke up with a, we did it with a guy called John Fields who's this great producer and we did it in a couple of days and it's that's my favorite sounding thing that we ever did so anyone who gives a shit about gratitude go find the second version of Feel Alright because that's what I think the band always could have been and I'll send it to you if you want and the you know you've done some uh, guesting and things like that was it sort of you know working with deftones i think you sung on some songs right and yeah well the I mean, fort minor song yeah so yeah i mean deftones again that's we grew up together so that was more um yeah so we did the we did the cover of savory by Jawbox, um and that was literally driving up from la i think they had just either were just had just put out around the fur or were had just finished recording it or something and we were giving them a ride back up and we were just listening, you know, just playing DJ in the car, put on Savory, and ah, this song's amazing, we should cover this song. And so we got together and did that. 
the Be Quiet and Drive thing was me. I just I loved that song so much, and I made a weird little version of it. Chino loved it, and he wanted to just use my little demo as the B side, and I sort of insisted that he sing it somehow because it was his band and so he made a version that's kind of like the version i made so that's that collaboration thing and then no ordinary love was just they were playing a Chardet tune he was like hey you should come over and sing the Chardet tune with me cool so we did that so that was all just really like sacto hanging out yeah um the fort minor stuff was uh yeah mike um calling me up on the side of the road and he he heard this song Pollyanna, which was the first one line drawing thing that ever came out. It was on a on a comp called Songs for the Brokenhearted. Can't get more emo <laughs> than that. It was me and Jimmy Eat World, and I forget who else was on it, but it's a, it was a good it's a good little comp. But so this tune Pollyanna was on there, and Mike Shinoda somehow heard this, and Lincoln Park was huge at the time, and I literally thought it was someone pranking me when he called me, um, but he said he really liked that and just invited me down for a session then that turned into two or three songs on the Fort Minor record and then a Lupe Fiasco song he actually ended up using an old far hook but wanted me to re-sing it um, for this Lupe Fiasco song the instrumental so that turned into that and then there's yeah I mean there's tons of other strange little guest things but that was really fun and um, that was a huge song yeah yeah. The Where'd You Go song was, was out there for a minute. That was as that was as that was as mainstream famous as I've ever been. That's when all my daughter's friends thought she was cool because like her dad was in the because well, I was in the video. Yeah. And he put my name he I mean he's so nice about it. He put, you know, featuring Jonah Matranga and Holly Brooke and, and um Yeah, I mean I just I just sang the chorus. Um but yeah, no, that was a, I still get little royalty checks for that. See, it helps out. Oh, he, that guy, he has helped me out. He has helped me out in more ways than one. So, I mean, you talked earlier about sort of the being the loner and sort yeah. of the, you know, I think the most I remember is like you showing up in a car or, yeah. you know, kind of having this pay your own way. Yeah. I know you've mentioned in interviews and things like that, that this is kind of what you do and it feels right. I mean, it's it's the long time to do that, you know? And, and it's like, yeah. it's still, um, is it still something that is inside that has to happen? You know, playing these things, playing this way, or are you I, hoping that it, like you've had all these chances where not chances, but you know no, what I mean? Like have all these good one. Yeah. For, sure. To have these things happen. You're still doing it. I guess the question is you're, you know, still kind of going about it. Like you're a kid with, no money. Yeah, well, it's because I am. Um, I mean, I think part of it is growing up with a lot of scarcity. I think I'm partly, I think I'm scared of success to some degree. And I think I have a lot of, frankly, disdain for it. Um, there's a, a thing that happened way back. It was on the Downward Spiral Tour. Uh, and I was at Arco Arena. And I was psyched to see Nine Inch Nails. They're on top of the world. And... If anyone had done it his way, it was Trent Reznor at that time, you know. And, yeah. And, and I was so excited for the show. And right before the lights went down, I was looking around the venue and I saw these advertisements on the wall. And it just hit me that I was in a big cement building named for an oil company with ads all over the wall. And this was supposed to be the end of the rainbow. And it just, it kind of took... This is, you know, this is before, uh, this is way back before Far even really got going. Um, 
and this is that really took a lot of the wind out of my sails in terms of I mean I tried after that obviously I was on a major after that I was on another major with gratitude I tried to interface with that world but I would always say no or I would always I just cared about I cared too much I cared too much it was I mean there were so many things that I would get hung up on that managers or booking agents or label people or other people I was in bands with just thought I was crazy and maybe they were right but all I really cared about was that feeling of connection all I really cared about and still care about the most is just the excitement of having an idea that is the most fun for me most fun for me with a song is before anyone hears it, before it's a commodity, before it's anything. I just have these love affairs with these songs. Not because I think they're so great, but just because they're so great to me. And they're so fun to make friends with. And their songs are kind of like my little buddies. And then the people that like those songs, those are my buddies too. Because they're the people who I show the little drawing to, not to be punny about one-line drawing, but really, like, it, I just think of, like, being a little kid and showing my mm-hmm. drawing to people, and do you like this? And so the people that like it, it's just, it's just a really sweet relationship for me, and it's, it's just always been my center. Um, and I just... I, yeah, like you said, I've tried to do other things. I've had opportunities to do other things. And I don't really know. No one's wrong or right. And I, I can get kind of mad at myself once in a while, but not really. Because actually, because I'm still here. I mean, I was just on the sidewalk singing outside Mercury Lounge, sort of like I've always been doing. And I was as happy as I ever remember being doing that. And so it was... And there's 10 to 15 people there. and Yep. And that's, that's more than zero. That's perfect. <laughs> it's per- that's a perfect number for me. Lately, I'm... I'm literally thinking about doing a tour that's something called like 18 to 36-ish or something and it's just all shows that are that size because oh, I thought you meant ages I know yeah, I'm yeah, out. Yeah, cool, 14 to 41 and all that stuff yeah <laughs> nope but it's just people Got people it. in a room um, yeah this kind of this equation hit me a long time ago where the more people are at any given event whether it's a rock show or a political whatever the more people are there the higher the percentage will be of people that are there just because other people are there, not because of what the event was initially. It's just people kind of want to be around a crowd or who are curious or want to be part of the scene. And I've just never been interested in that feeling. I'm interested in the feeling of people that are really, really excited to be there. And it wasn't that I need people to stop because I'm such an important artist. It's just because I know the feeling of silence in a room when people are together listening to music. I don't care if it's my music or anyone else's. That feeling is just, it's just the greatest. It's church. It's whatever yeah, you want to call it. It's, it's, it's everything for me. And when that gets lost, to me, when that fun of music gets lost and when the fun of playing it with abandon like a fucking teenager gets lost, it's a super shitty life. It's it's That's why you have so many... Rock stars, whatever, that commit suicide or get strung out or just, you know, do self-destructive shit. I mean, there's a million reasons for it, obviously. Matt, think, Matt said he loves doing terrible twos, his kid shows, because right. no one yells, don't hate me. Right. Kids don't know that song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yet. But yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's the, yeah. he, wa- he went so far as to play for kids. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I know. 
No, and, and Matt's a person I kind of look across the aisle at because he's someone who he's you know he's obviously kept going and tried to figure out his way through it. And he's had the solo stuff. Yeah. He's had. Yeah, he's just always kind of always trying to a different thing, and I really appreciate that about yeah, him. And there are going to be people that only know fourteen to forty one. Yeah, but there are other people that only going to know water solutions, or there's people like tonight yeah. that know every fucking word. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I guess the good way about the good thing about the way I've done this is that at this point, anyone who's been through, you know, so what did we just talk about? We talked about two major labels interspersed with some weird like indie label stuff interspersed <laughs> with like four records from home uh, a cameo on a hip hop record you know or, or a couple hip hop records a top 40 um, hit yeah I mean yeah a top 40 <laughs> hit uh, you know and like yeah and like and the second major label record was like a big pop rock kind of whatever so anyone who's still around they know that I'm just this person who's just kind of doing exactly whatever the fuck I want to do and not really worrying about it. And I'm I'm aware of the ACDC model. I get the idea of like sticking with your brand and um, or Deftones, God bless them. I mean, they have made pretty much the same record for a long time now. And and people dig it. And they're still doing their thing. And they're still seem I think they've come through a lot of real storms and sadness yes. and stuff and and so I just I just adore them as people so much, and I really respect them because they've like worked and hustled and done a similar thing for a long time. And I don't think there's one record I've done from one to the next that's been probably the most similar. Maybe is Visitor and the Volunteers, and that's even those two records are super super different. But everything else, um, it's just all over the place, and it's just it's funny. I'm glad we started out talking about Brookline and stuff because. It's really that same kid who's, I'm into the cars and I'm into no, it this totally Boston makes sense. LA. You know, it's just I like them all. Um, and being a dad, the, the whole time I was doing all this, there's, that can't be understated. Not it, it just because, I mean, a lot of reasons. Partly, I just really had to hustle and you know and keep food on the table and and I had to tour in a way where I wasn't away from her for too long. Um, the most I would ever go away was two or three weeks at a time. Um, and that is just, that's not the way bands tour. There's so many tours I've turned down over the years because they want to go out for six weeks or something. And I tell, you know, I ask them, like, can I just do the West Coast leg or can I do this? But they want someone who, you know, I get it. Yeah. It's not, again, I'm not mad. It's nothing like that. But that's been a big thing for me. And also, it was never, it couldn't be just to make money to go out there. If it was, I was going to leaving my kid, it had to be something more special than that. And that really added to my idealism because it had to be something cool. I couldn't, couldn't do something that was just kind of a money grab. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not because I'm like so super ethical, like I need money too. It just, it wasn't worth it to me. It wasn't, it just wasn't, it didn't sit well with me. I mean, Hannah herself, my daughter, asked me at one point, like, why didn't you try harder to be famous? And I said, I don't really know, but I just know I wouldn't have been as many soccer games. Exactly. You know, I just wouldn't have been there. And I don't know what that would have looked like. Maybe it would have been great. Maybe we would have had more money and that would have been wonderful. But I just didn't, I just didn't want to take that chance. Um, and so I don't know why it, it's, you know, when we're talking about sort of chances I've had and stuff, I think about that stuff, but I don't think too much about it, partly because there never was time to think about it, because I was always 
between trying to be a dad and trying to make music and trying to make a living, there really wasn't much time for reflection. Mm -hmm. I just had to kind of like, go with my gut and do my thing. And now that I'm taking the breath to reflect... You've had and, time for the book. Well, then I had time for the book. I had time to sit down and kind of look back on things. And now I can start to, start to see some patterns. And it's, you're asking a lot of interesting questions that are things that I've been asking myself over the past couple of years. Why did I take that left turn then? Why did that band break up? And some of it I still can't quite make sense of. And a lot of it I do, I am starting to see larger patterns. And there's something between me being a little bit scared to trust people, really idealistic, uh, really interested in being both a good father and a good musician and trying to balance those two things. And it's something within all that, I think, that has led to whatever it is that I've done. Um, and I'm really... I don't know. I can't... I'm really happy with the way it turned out. And more than anything, it just seems so obvious to me at this point that there's no other way it could have happened. And I don't mean that in some sort of platitude, it is what it is kind of way, but really, like when I think of the equation of what, what I was going through, trying to be dad and trying to do this, trying to do that, and all my different interests, of course, of course I ended up on the sidewalk outside Mercury Lounge playing to 15 people. Of course I did. Yeah. It's just sort of, yeah. I don't know. What 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 should people take away from the book? Tell people about it. Give a little thing. Is it is it your life from beginning to up till now? It's the bulk of the book is ninety four to now, which is when my daughter was born. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some early childhood stuff. I think anyone who's had kind of a crazy chaotic childhood or wants a lens into what that you know, there's some stuff about that. How did you remember stuff? Because I was actually reading through it while you were still inside doing some merch stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was like, oh, man, if I only could remember, you know, half of this. I mean, my life's not interesting, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I didn't do music. Like, no one's going to read that. But sure. uh, but being able to remember those things, how long did that take to kind of... Did you have a journal or did you... It's funny. No, I mean, I think... I don't I don't remember much honestly and I know it might seem like that cuz it's all in the book but that book it's not like everything I remember but the way the book is structured is well so you're kind of doing an oral history of of emo and of the scene I was thinking of the book initially that I was going to have conversations with people like you and with other people who grew up in the scene and kind of ask people so what do you remember about me who do you remember me being cuz I didn't really remember it I was because I was just sort of living it and going yeah. really fast, and so at some point I realized that I could have all those conversations and that would be sweet. But then I'd just be writing down someone else's memories, and and everyone's memory is flawed. So I really just wanted to write things that I remembered clearly. So the the easiest way to understand the book is that it's just everything that's written in there. I remember happening really well. And there's nothing that I don't remember happening really well that's in there. Um, and so it, it turned into having a good rhythm, but I didn't know what it was going to be at first because at first it seemed kind of disjointed to me. And still there, you know, when people read it, they say a lot of the feedback I've gotten is that at the beginning, people are wondering who these different people are that are kind of coming in and out of the book. And the way I figured it was, again, it's just I didn't have the time nor desire to try and 
give a background to every character that wandered through, especially if they were in it for one memory when I was mm -hmm. 15 or 25 or 35. They just kind of move through the book. And the people that stick around, the reader will get to know because that person keeps recurring. But again, that's not on purpose. It's not on me trying to have an arc. It's just me thinking through my life. I mean, I've got all these crazy charts of years and months. And so I didn't have journals. All I did was blocked out the years. I just kind of blocked it out. And I thought, okay, where was I then? And mm -hmm. that's how I... So it's based on 36 songs over the course of my life. And I used the songs because I remember where I was a lot when I was writing a song or when I was first playing mm -hmm. it. And so I used those memories to kind of radiate out into whatever else was going on in my life. So, I mean, it's just a, it's just a story of, of a person trying to figure out. I guess the thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is when Han would ask me or she would say to me, I know you have to go away for work. I would say, I don't have to go away. I'm choosing to, and I hate it in the sense that I miss you a lot, and that sucks, and I really love this so much. So I think, more than anything, the book is just about what it is to try and make a choice and hold on to the things that are really dear to you and not lose yourself and become, you know, an old shitty adult, um, just to really kind of keep your, to keep your heart, I guess. I mean, that's, I didn't know that going in. But by the time I was done with the book, I thought it was really about that. It's um, it's about trying to trying to live in an an earnest and uh, authentic kind of real life that's got all the, you know, book's got a ton of happy and a ton of sad, some scary, some a lot of confused, um, and I just wanted. I wanted it to be for anyone who wanted to check it out. Anyone who's loved the music, of course. But even for someone who's never heard a note of my music, it's, um, I just wanted to have it a good lens into telling, I just really believe in people telling their stories. Like when you say you didn't have an interesting life, I swear to you, if you took the time to kind of block this stuff out and told the truth about your childhood and the weird things you thought when you were a teenager and, you know, the, the breakups and the this and the that. I'm not saying yeah. I mean, I was, I still am self. I wrote a book about my life. Who the fuck am I? I didn't save India or invent some drug that helped everyone live. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to war. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything that substantial. I was just in a band and raised a kid. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not really, it's not that big a deal. And I just, I love stories. I love when people tell their stories. It lets me know them. I think we find out truths about each other and, um, Moby and he's just popped into my head he came into the studio when we were making Water and Solutions and I'd always loved his liner notes because they were really forthright and I said that to him I said yeah I really like how you just kind of raw you write your point of view and he said something along the lines of I figure if I write what I mean then I'll look back on that and know where I was and so that's what I wanted the songs to be all the time. And that's what I wanted the book to be. It's like, it's my best attempt at making a document about who I was. And uh, so, of course, it's for anyone that wants to read it. But really, more than anything, it's for my kid. It's for Hannah. Because she's always going to have this document of her dad making his best attempt at saying who he was, who she was to me, what our life was like, where I came from. 
and it's something that our family has now and honestly I, I wish everyone would do it I just think it's a really neat thing to do um, and it was, was hugely hugely transformative for me to do it I mean aside from the craziness of writing a book just to just to kind of get some perspective I mean I'm pushing 50 now and she's growing up and um, and it's been a really really dense life and it, it was really good to sit down and just kind of take a rest and I don't know where I go from here or anything like that um, but I do know more than ever that it's got to stay it's got to stay fun it's I mean it's got to stay interesting it's got to stay personal these are the only things that are worth it to me when I started out trying to be a musician all forever ago I think I had a lot of different dreams in my head but in the past 25 years it's actually been a whittling down of all these things I don't like about being a musician and just sort of cutting those out and leaving those behind and then what's left are these small rooms with sweet people that shut up and respect each other um, and aren't afraid to be super silly and super serious and super political and super irreverent and uh, all at once Um, because that that's how I am with my close friends. That's how I am with my loved ones. That's how I want to be with anyone that gives a shit about the music. Like I, to me, it's it's just all. I want it all to be the same thing, um, and I hope the book is that. Sort of like you know, sort of like hope the music is that. Because with all this rambling that I'm doing now, I never think I'm quite saying it right. But there are a couple moments in a couple of songs where I think I kind of got it right, and. I feel super lucky for that because I think a lot of people go their whole lives without even trying to say it, let alone getting it right, where they can look back on it and say, like, that's what I meant. Um, and so the book was my best was my best shot at doing that in sort of a longer form. You answered the last question I had anyway. Through oh, good. It. Yeah, that's why I shut up. That's how it works out. That's how it works out. Um, I'm so happy we finally did this. I'll get through it. I'll get Up emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume Two was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com